0: So with us today, we have Adria Kennedy, and she's home from YWAM. Adria, for those of us who don't know, what is YWAM? So YWAM is
1: a global missions organization. Um, So they do DCSs, which are um, discipleship training schools. They do three months of training, so like reading Bible, getting equipped with knowledge of who God is, and then three months of outreach, which um, is making God known.
0: Uh, Which YWAM are you currently involved with?
1: Um, So, I'm currently with uh, YWAM Ships Kona, so I'm committed to that one for two years, and I have completed one year. Um, But I've also been at the YWAM Outpost Panama base, Um, they're like a partner with YWAM Ships Kona, so that counts as part of my commitment.
0: So, out of all like um, 600 plus YWAMs in the world, what, what brought you to Kona? So in December
1: 2019, I was just kind of praying about what to do with my life, and um, YWAM was really on my heart. So um, I just said, Lord, if you want me to go back um, to YWAM in any way, just make it super clear. And then like a half hour later, I got this random message on Facebook from this guy named Raymond, and he works at YWAM Ships Kona, and he was asking if I would join staff.
0: Just randomly. Yeah. I'd That's pretty cool. I've never met him
1: before, never heard of a base before.
0: That is very cool. Um, so how is God using you in Panama? So we have different teams coming in
1: and out, um, so just making sure they're healthy and energized. Um, but yeah, also being able to go along with them and do ministry with them. We have a couple different ministries in the villages beside us. Um, we did like a kids ministry, a Bible study.
0: Um, and well dating is another big thing. Hmm, that's pretty cool. So you're working with the other students that are coming in, the other young people? Yeah. Yeah. What has been the most challenging thing about, um, about going to YWAM? How has God come through for you?
1: Probably just taking on a lot of responsibility. Um, God just kind of showed me through that, like, that I'm capable of a lot more than I thought I was. Um, and, yeah, just reminded me of the verse Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So
0: you're home for a little while?
1: Yes, um, I'm planning on going back in March if travel restrictions allow me to.
0: So we as a church, how can we come alongside you and, and help you and support you and, and getting back to God's work for you in Panama? Um, definitely prayer just for travel to be
1: open and yeah just that that would all work out, that God would make a way um, and financial support is also awesome. Um, it's $400 a month to live on base, and then just other like living expenses on top of that, and then travel expenses. Travel can be very expensive, so um, whether it be monthly support or just a one-time donation, anything is super
0: appreciated. Um, okay, that's great, thank you, Adria. Thank is you. it okay if I pray with you before we end up? Sure. Thank you. Dear God, thank you for this time with Adria. Thank you for clearly speaking to your heart as you lead her to those We need to know your love, your peace, and your message of hope. God, please give Adria a clear path back to Panama if it be your will. Give her clarity, wisdom, and resources to continue the path that you set her on. We want only for your will to be done, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, Adria. Thank you.
2: Well, hello, Solid Church, and welcome to our online gathering. My name is Jackson Brotherton, and I'll be your host today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy week to pause and join with us as we praise our Father in heaven. But first, here is the weekly update. It's that time of year again. Our annual general meeting is just around the corner. Today, information will be released on how to register for this meeting, and we'd invite you all to join us. Remember or not, you are welcome to stick around after our morning gathering, March 6th, to hear about what God is doing this coming ministry year. Mark it on your calendar and plan to stick with us for this meeting, both in person and online. Also, that morning, we are looking forward to an exciting service. Just like normal, we'll be gathering for communion and collecting our benevolence offering. But also, we are going to be joining together with our church family for some baby dedication and baptism. What a great time to gather as a family to celebrate new commitments and statements of faith. This coming week, the Diamonds Ministry is going to be hosting a second song and stories event at Solid Church. This was an excellent time last month, and this promises to be similar. Can you join us? You're asked to RSVP if you could with the instructions on the screen. These instructions are also available in this week's e-blast that came out on Thursday. If you have any other questions, feel free to call the church. We want to share in the joy of Christelle and Matt Pellows. Baby Kazai was born on February 5th and everyone is doing very well. Congratulations. Also, you're always welcome to join with us in giving. We ask that God takes what we, as a church, freely give and multiply to bless our community in Jesus' name. You can find out more information by heading to www.solvechurch.ca giving. That's it for our weekly updates. Again, thank you for engaging with the Father this morning. We are blessed and humbled that you were here with us. We're changing it up a bit this morning. Our worship leaders are pre-recorded from our in-person gathering last week. So as we transition into a time of worship, I'd like to read a psalm for us. Will you join me as we prepare to meet him today? Psalm 95. O come, Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. In the heights of the mountain are His also. The seas are His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God.
3: Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time Just as you are to worship, come. Just as you are before your God, come. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now come, now is the time to worship come now is the time as you are to worship, come, just as you are before your God, come. One day every tongue will confess you are God, one day every knee will bow. Time to give your heart. Come, just as you are to worship. Come, just as you are before your God. Hope is built on nothing his blood and righteousness i dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on jesus name when darkness veils his lovely face i rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy the and rock I stand on other ground is sinking sin, All other ground is sinking sand His oath is covenant, his blood Support me in the whelming flood When all around my soul gives way He then is Then he shall come with trumpet sound Oh, may I then in him be found Dressed in his righteousness alone For less to stand before the throne On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand other ground is sinking sin. On place the sun and rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sin. All other ground is sinking sin. All other ground is sinking sin. All other ground is sinking Amen. Let's give him the glory this morning. God, we just thank you for this this time, this reassurance, that we can know that we can stand on the rock, that you are the rock, God, that there's nothing that can blow us over. There's nothing that can uh, push us away from you and separate us from you. That God, you are so solid that you can withstand the storms of anything going on in culture. You can withstand the storms of anything going on in our hearts, in our families, at work. God, that you are that rock that we can lean to. And God, we know that comes with, um, comes with a time where we have to come to you and confess. God, we gotta let the pride go. We gotta let some of those things go that that tell us we can do it on our own. We can carry this burden on our on our own doing, God, we know that we have to come to you, and, and this morning we do that. We bring these burdens to you. We lay them down at your feet, because we know that at that place, that you're there to restore us. To the river, I am going. Bring sins I cannot bear, come and cleanse me, come forgive me, Lord I need to meet you. We're free. Let I know he holds a future in life is worth living just because he lives. God sent his son. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future, and life is worth living just because He. That river, and will fight lies fine. No war with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory. And although he lives, because he lives, I can face because he lives All fear is gone Because I know He holds the future And life is worth living Just because he lives Precious Jesus To surrender every care, take my hand now, lead me closer, Lord, I need to meet you there. Yes, God, we are here to meet you this morning. I pray that you will speak to us through the words that you have had uh, Chris prepare that you will inspire us this morning to to see you in a new way. God, we thank you for taking your precious time to meet with us here. Amen. Let's have a seat. Hello everyone and uh,
4: thanks again for joining us for our SCF online worship gathering today. Uh, And so we're gonna jump into our teaching time and we're gonna pick up where we left off last week. And last week we were considering the statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, love is not rude. And the rudeness blocks the flow of love. Love is ascribing unsurpassable worth to another. Rudeness is treating someone as if they have no worth. rudeness treats them... Uh, you know, in such a way that we ignore their worth. And so you can see why rudeness and love are incompatible. And last week, we touched on Genesis chapter three, and I want to touch on that again right now and then kind of launch uh, from there. The Genesis three passage is so important. It is so helpful for our understanding of the world, but also for our understanding of ourselves. In Genesis uh, chapter two, really, Paul gives to Adam and Eve a a prohibition. This is before sin has entered into the human experience. And in Genesis two, God says to Adam and Eve, you can have the, the fruit from every tree in the garden. It's all good. It's all for you. And it's all wonderful to eat. And you can have it all. There's just one tree in the center of the garden that I want you to stay away from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Don't even touch that tree. Just stay away from it completely. And of course we know from Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve violate that prohibition. But we asked the question last week, well, what would it have meant for Adam and Eve to have honored that prohibition? Well, basically they would have said, okay, God, uh, we'll do that. you, God, are the one uh, uniquely equipped to judge good and evil. You're omniscient. You know everything. There's nothing that's hidden from you. You see everything with perfect clarity. So you're the one uh, uniquely qualified to judge good and evil. So you do that you be God, we'll be who you created us to be, you created us to be lovers, we'll be lovers, we'll be filled with your love, God, we'll love you in return, we'll overflow with love to each other and to all others. So you be God, you be the judger of good and evil, we'll be uh, the lovers that you created us to be. But of course we know that Adam and Eve were not content with that arrangement and in Genesis chapter three, they indeed do uh, eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and immediately they become judgers rather than lovers. And we as a human race have been addicted to judgment ever since. We've become addicted to this knowledge of good and evil. We judge as if we're omniscient, but we're not. And as followers of Jesus, we have this uh, tendency to wanna live out of this addiction to the knowledge of good and evil. And so we have this this propensity to wanna look at the New Testament as a bunch of thou shalt and thou shalt nots that we then try really hard to do and try really hard not to do. We've got this tendency to wanna take Um, biblical principle and turn it into ethical rules and to turn it into moralistic uh, oughts and ought nots. And so we've got this tendency to want to look at the words of Paul and to see it as thou shalt not be rude. And when we see it that way, well, then we just focus on our behavior and we're constantly assessing our behavior. And when our focus is on our behavior, well, it's just naturally on the behavior of others too. And and we're constantly assessing the behavior of others. And then our judger kicks in. And when when our focus is on our behavior and on the behavior of others, uh, guess where our focus is not? It's not on Jesus. And so we're always assessing, assessing ourselves, and how am I doing? Am I doing okay? Am I being rude in this situation? And, and what about that situation? Am I being rude there? And what about them? Are they being rude? Well, I kinda think they might be. Well, that guy's definitely being rude. Hey, buddy, you gotta do better than that. You gotta try hard not to be rude. Look at me, I'm trying hard not to be rude, so you've gotta try hard not to be rude. And when, when what we hear uh, Paul saying is, "Thou shalt not be rude." Well, then we miss the whole point of First Corinthians thirteen. You know, Paul is not saying, "Hey, Sobel Church, uh, try really hard not to be rude." What Paul is saying is, "Hey, Sobel Church, live in love." In fact, you know, Paul is saying to us, "Just give up on that try hard track. Give up on that do better." Track. There's no life in it. Rather, Paul would have us, you know, learn to enjoy the outrageous grace of Jesus, to walk in the Spirit, to abide in Christ, to live from a place of fullness, to, to learn to enjoy the Jesus who lives in us, and to live from a place of celebration of, of all that we are in Christ. And when you do that, here's what it will look like. It will look like you being considerate to others, because love is considerate and not rude. But I'll tell you, if we if we get on this try hard not to be rude track, well, I'll tell you, we're just getting warmed up, because more than just this thing of rudeness, you know, there's there's all kinds of um, ambiguous areas in life, and life will always be way more ambiguous than our rules can accommodate. The ambiguities of life will always outpace our ability to accommodate them all with rules. Like, um, what do you do when you have a person in your life who just won't go away, right? They'll take up every second of your life until you cut the conversation off. And no matter at what point you cut the conversation off, they'll accuse you of being rude. Have you got anybody in your life like that? They essentially have no boundaries and eventually you just gotta say, I gotta go. Well, oh, how rude, right? But if we're on that try hard not to be rude track, well, man, we've got a lot of questions. What is the essence of rudeness? And how does it apply to this situation? And how does it apply to that situation? And are there circumstances under which rude behavior actually doesn't constitute rudeness? And and are there circumstances where it does constitute rudeness? and You know, what if the person who won't go away is your mother-in-law? Like, is there a polite way to tell your mother-in-law to go away? some of you guys might be saying, "Well, yeah, there's a polite way to tell your mother-in-law to go away," and and you who are mother-in-laws are saying, "No, there's never a polite way to tell your mother-in-law to go away," and and uh, and and now we've got two factions here, right? We've we've taken our 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 beautiful SCF online family, and now we've created two factions. There's this pro mother-in-law group and this anti mother-in-law group, and and. Uh, you know, groups with their own theories about what the essence of rudeness really is and how the rules of rudeness apply and when they don't apply. And, and uh, you know, you can have a church split over mother-in-laws. You can have a, a pro-mother-in-law church and an anti-mother-in-law church. And, and uh, maybe each of those churches can begin their own denomination, right? Who knows? And, that's, and we're just on this one little topic of rudeness. And all we're doing is just trying to figure it out. We're just thinking, you know, if I can just nail down all the rules about rudeness and, and, and figure out all the situations that apply to, to all people at all times, including mother-in-laws and including like pesky neighbors who let their dogs poop on your lawn and the uh, pushy salespeople and telemarketers and so on. Um, you know, if, if I can if I can if I can figure out all of that. All of, if I can figure out all of these gray areas about rudeness and where the rules apply, well, then I can finally not be rude. Well, here's the thing. You can, you can have all the information and all the knowledge about rudeness, and you can be as rude as all get out. In fact, you probably will because you're coming at this thing from a place of emptiness where you're trying to get your sense of, of okayness and your sense of, of, um, of meaning and purpose from having all the correct opinions about rudeness. And of course, if we, if we do that, we're, we're missing the point of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's not giving us an ethical rule. He's not saying try really hard not to be rude. What he is saying is live in love. And he's giving us, you know, indicators to help us know when we're not living in love. And so when we see rudeness begin to creep into our experience, the solution is not to say, oh man, I got to try harder. I got to do better. The solution is not, oh man, I got to bite my tongue and not say what I really want to say. No, the solution, Paul says, is to live in love, to live centered on Jesus, and to be uh, uh, filled with with the love of Jesus, and and, um, where we live out of a celebration of who we are in Christ, that makes all the difference. When you live in this addiction of the knowledge of good and evil, it just creates all kinds of questions because life has all kinds of ambiguities we'd like life to be perfectly clear, wouldn't we? Like we, we'd like to be able to, you know, put all the correct people over here and put all the incorrect people over there. We'd like to have these neat and tidy, very clearly delineated lanes. And we'd like to, to have all these answers abound and uh, all of these issues settled. But you know what? Life isn't like that. And if you're um, living life trying to get your okayness and trying to get your worth uh, from your ability to figure out all of these ambiguities, well, your brain is just gonna be tied up in knots like all the time. You'll be constantly wondering and constantly assessing and constantly stewing. Either that or you'll just uh, impose a very simplistic black and white view of the world and you'll become a very arrogant person who's quite Frankly, pretty unpleasant to be around. But if you are constantly assessing and and stewing about how to make neat and tidy rules uh, about with all the ambiguities in the world, your brain is gonna get tied up in knots. You're gonna walk around kind of assessing yourself all the, am I being rude? I don't know if I'm being rude. I hope I'm not being rude. I'm trying not to be rude. Maybe I am being rude. Well, I better not be rude. I'm gonna try harder. And while I'm at it, you know, Paul says, love is is patient. Am I being patient? What is patient? What does patience mean in this situation and that situation? And and he says, love is kind. And, and, you know, how does kindness apply here? And how does does kindness not apply there? And, you know, we can can just get ourselves all knotted up. And we do this with ethics. We do this with doctrine. We do this with Bible passages. uh, We do this with eschatology right? Eschatology is the, is the study of, of uh, end times. And uh, we can be like, oh my gosh, I got to have the right eschatology. But you know, what does this verse mean? Well, this verse could mean that, but this verse could also mean the other thing. And man, oh man, there's smart and godly people who believe this about that verse. And then there's smart and godly people who believe that about this same verse. And, and uh, oh my goodness, you know, which way am I going to go? What am I going to do? And um, If you're getting your sense of okayness, if you're getting your sense of meaning and purpose and security from having all the correct opinions about all of that stuff, well, you're gonna be like tied up in knots all the time. And you will reek with non-life. There, uh, one time was this frustrated monk, Sounds like I'm gonna tell a joke, this isn't a joke. There was a frustrated monk who went to see St. Augustine, and St. Augustine was that very famous uh, Bishop of Hippo in the fifth century, and so this frustrated monk uh, goes to see Augustine, and this monk is just all tied up in knots. he's all uh, nervous about sin. Is it sin if I do this? Is it sin if I do that? and is it sin if I think this thought? and how do I get rid of this, and how do I get more of that? and how do I think my th- my way through this uh, Bible passage and how do I think my way through this theological issue and how do I reconcile this with that and so on? And you know here's my experience. there are some Christians who succeed at making Christianity a big problem. Uh, like a problem uh, that if that if they could just figure it all out, well, then they'd get around to living it. But they never do get it all figured out, so they never really do get around to living it. And uh, that's how this guy was who came to see Augustine, this priest. He's all tied up in knots. And so finally, Augustine gives this guy some advice, and this is it. He says, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. See, what Augustine knew is this, that your worth, your security, your significance, your meaning and purpose is not found in your ability to resolve all of these knowledge of good and evil questions. Augustine knew that life will always be way more ambiguous than we'll ever be able to get our brains wrapped around. As we said, the ambiguities of life will always outpace the, uh, the ability of our brains to wrap around all of these ambiguities. You know, in fact, there, there are some issues that I'm quite convinced are just not solvable. And we've got to just learn to live with that and. Uh, most importantly, we need to learn to love each other within the tension of ambiguity. See, what Augustine knew and what Paul knew is this. If you, if you love the Lord, if you love God with all your heart, and if you're getting loved by God and living loved, and you're living from the fullness of God's love and overflowing with that fullness to, to all others... And, you know, what that does is it takes all of these questions and puts them into kind of a different perspective because life doesn't hang on those questions anymore. And, and it can bring a certain lightness, it can bring a certain levity, it can bring a certain winsomeness. Not that those issues are unimportant, they are. Think about them, deal with them, but life doesn't hang on them. And what I find is this, that when somebody loves God with all their heart, They can do what they want and it'll usually be the right thing. See, if you're operating from a place of loving God, living from the fullness of his love, and you're motivated by love and you're being transformed by love and your mind is being renewed by God. And yeah, then maybe there are these gray areas, these ambiguities, and maybe you don't know what to do, but. You don't need to retreat inside your own head and get all knotted up, uh, trying to figure it all out as if your life depended on it. No, you can just let God's spirit guide you. And maybe you make a wrong decision now and then. But you know what? It's not going to be terribly destructive because worst case scenario is you just didn't love quite as perfectly as you should have. And so it brings a calmness. It brings a, a lightness. It brings a a winsomeness, and your life is starting to have the aroma of life rather than death. Uh, Years ago, back in the 90s, um, I was at a different church, and uh, I had a friend there. Um, We weren't super close friends, but uh, we were certainly friendly uh, to each other. And um, this this man has since died. I had the honor of uh, conducting his funeral back uh, several years ago. Um, But what he liked to do is to come and see me and he'd like to bounce off his thoughts and ideas off of me. And this guy was, he was very clever, but he was very distracted. And uh, he got all tied up in knots about non-essential, even unknowable uh, points of theology. And in his later years, he got really tied up about eschatology, this doctrine of end times. He really became obsessed. Now, eschatology is not unimportant by any stretch, but my friend, um, he kind of became like the monk who went to see Augustine, just all tied up in knots. He didn't have the aroma of life right? Like I would not have wanted my friend to hang out with my unchurched neighbors because they would have got a rather uh, unpleasant perception of Christianity. This guy didn't exemplify the, the lightness and the winsomeness uh, that comes from, you know, living um, uh, filled with the love of God and the and, uh, certain that all of our core longings are fully met by God in Christ. Rather, this uh, friend of mine was trying to you know, trying to find his security and find his significance in his purpose in becoming expert and in uh, knowing and understanding something that really is ultimately unknowable. And people who were his friends started to feel uncomfortable uh, being around this guy, and they started to avoid him because he was so obsessed. And this this was a good guy; he had a good heart. Um, he loved Jesus, he loved the scripture, he wanted to do the right thing, but he was just all knotted up and his life kind of hung uh, on this. And he was like, you know, if I can just get to the bottom of this. Uh, anyway, I tra- what, I, what I tried to do with this guy was to kind of borrow a page from the playbook of Augustine. And so I, I said to my friend in, in rather uh, direct fashion, I said, I would strongly advise you to initiate a two-month moratorium on your study of eschatology. And instead, spend two months focusing on the face of Jesus. I said, your pursuit is choking life in you and theology is not meant to choke life. Now, it is good to be concerned with right doctrine. It absolutely is. It's good to be concerned about doing the right thing, but it's so important that we do it from a place of fullness, that we do it from a place of being filled with the love of God and from a place of, of, uh, uh, from, from the reality that all of our core longings are met by God in Christ. Here's what Paul says. This is 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What you see determines what you become. What you see determines what you become. It's not what you can figure out, it's not where you land on the political spectrum, it's not about Uh, You know, having just the right opinion on this, that, or the other thing. It's not about where you end up on on your eschatology or your pneumatology or whatever other ology. It's looking into the beautiful, outrageously loving and compassionate face of Jesus and just basking in his incredible love for you and having that mean more to you than anything else. Gazing upon him, dwelling there, contemplating uh, him, And then you become more and more like him in attitude and action. As you look on him, as you see him, that's where transformation is found. You've uh, perhaps read the story in uh, Luke chapter uh, 10, I think it is, of of the two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus is visiting at their house, and uh, you find Martha. She's in the kitchen. Uh, and she's ticked off and you can tell because the pots are banging and the cupboard doors are slamming and she's busy getting a a meal prepared and she's doing it from a place of emptiness. She's finding her purpose and value and meaning and her productivity and and her judger is activated and, and she says to Jesus, you know, tell my sister Mary to get her butt in here and to help me get this meal ready because where was Mary? Well, she's in the other room sitting at the feet of Jesus just contemplating him, looking into his face, being with him. And Jesus says, Martha, you know, you're so tied up in knots. But Mary is doing the one thing that is needful. She's sitting at my feet. She's contemplating me. She's being with me. That's where transformation lies. And so, Many times people will run around the, the kitchen of their theology, run around the kitchen of their ethics. You know, got to make sure God is happy with my thinking and where, where I'm coming down on this issue. And God, it'd be really great if you could help other people see it my way. Oh, you know, friends, the, the one thing that is needful, the one thing that is transforming is to sit at the feet of Jesus and that is not to say all this other stuff is unimportant. It is. Let's learn. Let's examine. Let's, let's try to have sound and balanced uh, doctrine on all points of theology. But what we want to understand is there's no transformation in it. So you could have all of the correct theological information in the world and it will not transform your life. It can... It can change some things. Like it can shuffle some furniture around on the front porch of your life, but it doesn't get in the front door. There's no transformation in that. Information in and of itself is not transformational. You know, understanding all the nuances of rudeness and when certain intricate nuances of rudeness apply and when they don't apply and and having a robust system of boundaries isn't gonna transform you. It'll change some things, but it's not gonna bring transformation. It won't transform you. There's only one thing that will transform you and that is the outrageous love and grace of Jesus flowing into your life. And you sitting at his feet and gazing on his face, that's the needful thing, said Jesus. That's the thing that brings transformation. That's the one thing that will give you the aroma of life. Dwell in him, look to him, bask in his love, swim in his grace. When we operate on the basis of our addiction to the knowledge of good and evil, we kind of turn everything into a problem. Have you ever noticed, like, you're reading through the Gospels and um, a lot of times people would come to Jesus with, with these problems and they would try and get Jesus to weigh in on their problems and try and get Jesus to take a side and trying to get Je- trying to co-op Jesus um, to... to uh, to validate their opinion about whatever problem it is uh, that they're experiencing. And Jesus just never took the bait. He never did. And, and we try to do that. We try to, we try to gain divine authority for our opinions. Right? It's like, you know, we've been talking about uh, blockades and convoys and such. Well, what, you know, here's what I think Jesus' opinion would be about blockades. Um, Jesus never weighed in to these multitude of of problems. He never took the bait on those. It's like, you know, in Luke 12, this um, this guy says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus looked at the guy and says, what do I look like, a lawyer? And you know, Jesus didn't come so that we could use him to bring clarity to all the issues of life. Whether you're a Christian or not, life just has a lot of tough issues. And there's just a lot of tough stuff that we've got to work through. Jesus didn't come to make life life crystal clear for all of us. And there's a lot of Christians who want life to be crystal clear, probably because they're getting their sense of worth and security from from the correctness of all of their opinions. And they just want Jesus to validate their opinions. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things about life that are just really ambiguous. And if we're trying to, you know, get our sense of okayness and worth from the correctness of our opinions, then we're gonna try and co-opt Jesus into that. And Jesus never took the bait on that stuff. He never weighed in. What he did do, was he would often turn the question around on the questioner. And in fact, to this guy in Luke 12, who said, Jesus, tell my brother to in- divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, what well, do I look like, a lawyer? Well, Jesus ended up saying to that guy, oh, beware of greed, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. See, Jesus didn't come to that guy with, with you know, 10 ways to get your brother to like you and to share the inheritance with you. Jesus... Jesus didn't come with a new ethical system. Jesus didn't come to bring a new religion. Jesus came to bring life, life to the full. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, once said, Jesus did not call people to a new religion, but to life. And you know, you read through the Gospels, and let's face it, Jesus doesn't provide all the answers that we might like him to. He doesn't resolve all the disputes. And this is why love is so central. Because if we don't get great at love, there are a trillion things that could blow us apart. So many opinions. And if you're getting your sense of worth and significance and security from the correctness of your opinions, there will be nothing but conflict. And maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus left the ambiguity in place. So that we would learn to love each other amidst, differences. He didn't answer all the questions that people continually threw at him. Because life isn't found in the particulars of all those questions. It's found in being filled with the life and the love of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus didn't bring a religion. He brought a relationship that he's inviting all people in on. He came to bring life. And you know, people are starving for life. Your Neighbors are starving for life. Your students, your classmates, your uh, coworkers are starving for life. All people are created to have the life of God in them. And I don't just mean the biological life. I'm talking about the John 10:10 kind of life where Jesus said, I've come so that you might have life and have it to the full. And people are starving for that. They're starving for life. People aren't starving for a new ethical system. People aren't starving for a list of religious duties. They're starving for life. You think about the prostitutes and tax collectors that we read about in the New Testament in in, in that first century. They were attracted to Jesus because Jesus had the aroma of life. They just knew that there was something, uh, something working for this guy that wasn't working for them in their life. And they were attracted to Jesus because he had this, the smell of life. They just had this gut recognition that he's got what I need. Think about the thief who was hanging on the cross and, and hanging there and, and, and could just smell the aroma of life on Jesus as they hung on these crosses. And this, this thief says, you know, I don't understand everything that's going on. I know that a couple hours ago I was cursing you, but, and I apologize for that. But will you take me with you to paradise? I don't know everything that's happening here, but what I do know is this. If I've got any hope in this life whatsoever, it's in you. That's the aroma of life. That's the smell of life. And Jesus was a magnet. He attracted prostitutes and tax collectors to himself because they just smelled this aroma of life. Uh, The prostitutes and tax collectors were repelled by the Pharisees. All the Pharisees had was judgment and condemnation and shame and lists and rules, and they had the smell of death. Well, we're way out of time. Rudeness. Love is considerate and not rude. You think about Jesus as you read through the gospels. Jesus was considerate of every single person. Jesus didn't, he didn't scale anybody. You know, he didn't treat important people one way and then unimportant people a different way. See, everybody was important to Jesus. If anything, he kind of reversed that a little bit, right? Like the people that you would think Jesus would be trying to impress, they're often the ones that he kind of ticked off. You know, I can, I can imagine the disciples saying to Jesus, you know, Jesus, we, we've been invited to uh, the home of Simon the Pharisee. He's a really important guy, he's way up here. He's an important Pharisee, he's really wealthy. Um, he could be a really important donor for us. And Jesus, I don't know um, if you're aware, but our bank account is just about empty. And so Jesus, when we go to Simon's house, if you could just like dial back the rhetoric a little bit. I'm not saying compromise Jesus, just, you know, just pull it back a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's important that we try and make friends with some wealthy and uh, powerful people. And of course, you know, they, the disciples and Jesus go to Simon's house and Jesus just ticks off everybody, right? But But for the unimportant people in the first century, Jesus had all kinds of consideration. You know, in in the first century, uh, men were way up here, and women and children and slaves and farm animals were way down here. And so the, the disciples were always trying to keep the unimportant people away from Jesus. Remember that scene where the, where the children are flocking to Jesus and, and the disciples say, hey, kids, get out of here. Don't you know that Jesus is important? And Jesus says, no, 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 let the kids come. Not only that, but this, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And think about that scene. Um, you know, Jesus and the disciples are in Jericho and they're heading out of Jericho toward Jerusalem um, for what would be that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And sometimes we kind of imagine that the parade doesn't start till they get to Jerusalem, but the parade is, is the whole way from Jericho. There's thousands of people there heading to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and Jesus is like, wow, he is like uh, unbelievably amazing. And everybody is, is saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches and they're throwing their coats down in front of him so he can walk on their coats. It's just this incredible parade and they're celebrating Jesus. And And somewhere along the way, on the side of the road, is this blind beggar. And when... When this beggar is alerted to the fact that Jesus is is passing by, well, he just starts to scream at the top of his lungs to Jesus, just screaming, screaming, screaming. And the disciples go to this guy and say, hey, dude, shut up. You're wrecking the parade. Don't you know how important Jesus is? And you know what Jesus does? This is amazing. He stops the parade. Like there's thousands of people. He stops them in their tracks. The whole parade stops and Jesus goes to this unimportant blind beggar and he spends time with him and he loves on him. And he says, what would you like me to do for you? That's a beautiful scene. Jesus stopped the parade for that guy. Jesus stops the parade for you. And you might be, you know, in, in the eyes of this world, you might be nothing. But I'll tell you, to Jesus, you are everything. Jesus is, is never rude. Jesus is never rude. He shows no partiality at all. Religious people always show partiality. The Pharisees, you think about it, they were incredibly rude they would only talk to, basically, to other Pharisees. They would never talk to tax collectors and, and prostitutes or blind beggars. No, those people were worthless to them. They ignored them. They judged them. They failed to ascribe worth to them. And a lot of religious people do the same thing today. You know, you think about the think about Paul, for an example. Um, if you read Acts 17, Paul's in Athens in... in uh, Greece and uh, in Athens he, he goes to Mars Hill and he's he's in communication with these pagan um, philosophical uh, thinkers in in Rome and Paul's not rude he's so polite he's so respectful he says you know I see that you are very religious and I noticed a monument to an unknown god can I talk to you about that just so polite affirming considerate. Paul looks for the best in people. And when he sees the, you know, the door open just a crack, he says, may I? He doesn't jam his foot in it. He says, may I? That's evangelism. We're called to all people at all times to demonstrate the outrageous love of God. And love is considerate. You take into consideration how a person feels, you take into consideration what a person thinks and what that person's opinions are. Evangelism is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. It's a relationship. And that's how the kingdom of Jesus moves forward. Well, we're gonna leave it there for today. In fact, we're going to leave this series for at least a couple of weeks, and we're going to get into a little two-part series over the next two weeks from Colossians chapter four. But what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to I'd like to pray uh, with you, and uh, then we're going to sing a song, and uh, it's a song called "Hope of the Nations." That Jesus is the hope of the nations, and and I'm sure like you, um, you know, I am grieved with the divisiveness that's uh, being experienced in our country right now, and I'd just like us to bow our heads and to, and to pray for our country. So would you join me? Lord Jesus, you are indeed our living hope. You are the hope of the nations. And Father, just as you poured out the Spirit at Pentecost, I pray that there would be a fresh baptism of love poured out here among us and among your church in Canada. Thank you, Father, that for those of us who have surrendered ourselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And this is something you have done And thank you, Jesus, that in this kingdom, you are our king. Thank you that our citizenship is in heaven and that we await our savior from there. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our prince of peace. And you call on us to be peacemakers and to be agents of reconciliation. You call on us to be your ambassadors in this world. And our Father, it grieves us to see such divisiveness in our country. We live in such a beautiful and privileged country, and we thank you for our country of Canada. And we thank you for the clear reminder in your word that we are to be a people who pray for our country and for our leaders. And so we pray today for Prime Minister Trudeau. We pray that you would bless him with wisdom and insight as he leads. And we pray for his cabinet and leadership team that you would grant them courage and determination and that they would make decisions that would ultimately be for our good and your glory. And we pray for premiers in Canada and for Premier Ford here in Ontario. And we pray for strength and resiliency and wisdom to lead well. And we lift up local leaders, our municipal governments, our leaders in First Nations. God, that you would grant wisdom and a commitment to work together for peace, truth, and reconciliation. You call on us, Father, not to berate our leaders, but to pray for them. And we understand Paul's words to Timothy matter, where he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And as we think about the, the many demonstrations and the blockades and the protests that have taken place, Father, we pray that where there is hostility, you would bring gentleness, that where there is division, you would bring unity, that where there are threats, you would bring peace, that where there is hatred, you would bring love, that where there is so much tension and noise, you would help bring peace and quiet. And I pray for all those engaged in in demonstrations, regardless of what side of the issue they're on, that there would be a willingness to listen to one another and to work together for peace and solutions and I pray for your church nationwide that we would be salt and light, that we would live from a place of fullness, overflowing with your love, considering others ahead of ourselves, holding forth the word of life in the midst of our culture, and that our very lives would reflect the truth that Jesus is indeed the hope of the nations.
3: Jesus comfort for all who mourn you are the source of heaven's hope on earth Jesus light in the darkness Jesus truth in any circumstance you are the source of of heaven's light on earth In history you lived and died You broke the chains, you rose to life You are the hope living in us You are the rock in whom we trust You are the light shining for us Rose from the dead, conquer and fear. Our Prince of Peace, drawing us near. Jesus, our hope, living for all who will receive. Oh, we believe. Jesus, hope of for all who are born you are the source of heaven's hope on earth Jesus light in the darkness Jesus truth in your circumstance chains. You rose the line. You are the hope living in us. You are the rock in whom we trust. You are the light shining for all the world to see. You rose from the dead conquer fear. Our prince of Drawing us near, Jesus our hope, living for all we will receive, Lord we believe, in history you lived and died, you broke the chains. In and we trust you are the light shining for all the world to see. You rose from the dead, conquering fear, our Prince of Peace, drawing us near. Jesus, our hope, living for all the will to see. Lord, we
2: Thank you for joining with us this morning. Don't forget to submit your prayer request and praise items by heading to prayer.salvachurch.ca. And just before we go, would you take a moment to like this video? And if you will, leave us a comment to let us know how this ministry is impacting you. Alright, that's it. See you next week.